Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is season six, episode 11. My name is Rick. I'm author of the just released Jesus Center Daily, Daily Devotional. Go to my website, jesuscenteredaily.com. Get a free sampler there, an intro video, and a little button where you can click to order, or you can just go on Amazon and order if you like. But I'm also the general editor of the Jesus Centered Bible, which uh, this is like a perfect time to think about getting a Jesus-centered Bible for someone you know who maybe, you know, hasn't developed that sort of passion that leads to regular uh, devotional time with the Bible. This Bible is designed to draw you into the heart of Jesus, no matter where you're reading in the entire Bible, including the Old Testament. It has these, this one of its eight or nine special features is this one-of-a-kind feature called the Blue Letters, where Ken Cast, Dr. Ken Castor and I spent weeks and weeks pouring through the Old Testament looking for connections to Jesus. Every time we found one, we highlighted that connection in blue lettering, and then we wrote a little blue breakout box that explained the connection, and there's about 600 of those that we've scattered throughout the Old Testament. They're on about every other page uh, as you go through there, and so what it does is it, it helps to connect the whole of the narrative. So sometimes people uh, uh, re- reference the Bible as sort of a user's manual for life. And that may be true of some aspects of it, but it's actually the story of God. It's a narrative. And uh, what we try to do is, is uh, piece together the narrative so it makes better sense all the way through from Old Testament to New Testament by adding these extra features. So if you know someone that you think would really benefit from reading a Bible that is easy to read and draws them to Jesus, no matter where they are, the Jesus Center Bible is it. So there's a link to it on our uh, podcast episode page. Again, this is season six, episode 11. You just go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and you look for the episode, uh, episode 11 of this year, and you'll see a link there to the Jesus Center Bible if you want to check it out. So, We're in the third episode of a new series called Jesus People, and we're going to be exploring the heart of Jesus through the lens of both his friends and his enemies and just people he encounters. Sometimes we'll look at people like the one we are going to look at today who uh, had a long and deep relationship with Jesus, lots and lots of immersive contact with him. And sometimes we'll look at people that just had a one-off encounter with him, the point through all this will be to sort of explore uh, the heart of Jesus and the depth of who he is through the lens of these other people. How did they experience him? What, what impact did it have on their lives after they met him? So we just pay attention to the people that loved him and the people that hated him and, and try to understand him from this new trajectory. And um, I, I, I've, for the first two episodes, I've repeated a quote from Dr. Peter Kreeft of Boston University. He's a professor and a C.S. Lewis scholar, and I just love this quote, so I'm probably just going to keep repeating it, but it's, it comes from a, a, a lecture 
he once gave at Boston University called The Shocking Beauty of Jesus, which the whole thing is just, I love it so much. In fact, I love it so much, I'll put the link to the audio recording of that uh, again on our podcast episode page. But here's, here's a couple of sentences from what he said. He said, Christ changed every human being he ever met. If anyone claims to have met him without being changed, he has not met him at all. When you touch him, you touch lightning. That is just so true. If you think about Jesus when you're reading him in the New Testament and through the lens of what Dr. Peter Kreef just said, um, you'll see that no matter who it was, when, when they met Jesus, they, they left that encounter changed in some way. Sometimes they were even more furious and sometimes their life was completely changed because they ended up leaving their old life behind to pick up a new life of following him. So in this episode, we're going to explore the heart of Jesus through the lens of his most important and in some ways his most important disciple friendship. We, we always think of Peter as being the one Jesus designated to lead the church afterward, but this person um, stuck out among all the disciples, mostly because of how he described himself, and that's what's interesting to pursue. So this person is John, and he described himself as the disciple Jesus loved. That's how he identified himself, <laughs> and uh, he's sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper. We know this because Peter leans over and asks him, since he's sitting next to Jesus, um, who the betrayer that Jesus is talking about really is at the table. And But it, it describes John as sort of reclining against Jesus, like physically uh, relaxed um, with, with Jesus, that there is almost like, if you could picture this, his head on Jesus' shoulder. Um, so John was someone who was completely captured by the heart of Jesus, so much so that he identified himself as a person who, uh, who, is, who is loved by Jesus. So let's give you a little quick overview here of John and his relationship to Jesus, just to refresh your memory, and then we'll dive in. So John and his brother James are the first disciples called by Jesus. They're, the two of them are part of their father's fishing business in Galilee. Um, so they are the sons of Zebedee and Salome, who later became a patron of Jesus and helped fund his ministry. We'll talk more about her in just a minute. But so the two, the two brothers are part of a family business in Galilee, and, and they, are, they are working this family business at a time when most people were slaves. So not only were most people not free to pursue their own course in life, but hardly any of them had their own business. And here, Zebedee and his sons were running this very successful fishing business in Galilee when Jesus sees them and calls them and they leave behind the family business to their father Zebedee while they go to follow Jesus. So <clears throat> of course, John is the younger of the two brothers of James and John. So he's certainly a teenager at this point. In fact, um, we can pretty well say that all of the disciples were teenagers because Peter was the only one required to pay the temple tax and the temple taxes for adults. And so 
we can safely say that all of them were under the age of 21. And John is uh, one of the younger ones of all the disciples. So he's certainly a teenager. Um, and, you know, uh, all of those disciples, save for Peter, were single. <laughs> so now it makes sense when you think about it, that they were all, they were all teenagers. And they also gave, gave them some flexibility to leave behind the life they were living to follow Jesus. You could think of it as like a gap year <laughs> after high school or after college. They, they took a gap year. It turned out to be three years following Jesus, but that's what they did. It helps to understand this, too, because these were all young men uh, that Jesus called. They were not old and wizened and worldly uh, men who had done a lot of living. They were young. And, um, they were still in their formative years. So um, these two brothers were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. <laughs> that was Jesus' nickname for them. And part of that could be because they were quite passionate. These two guys were quite passionate. But another reason may be that their mother was what you might call, uh, well, when people make stereotypes about Jewish mothers, that would fit James and John's mother. She was very invested in their future, shall we say. <laughs> she very much wanted her boys to succeed in life and have places of honor. She, she pleads with Jesus to, to uh, make sure that her boys sit at the right and left places of honor in his court. Um, and Jesus basically says, well, you guys, can you drink the cup I'm gonna drink? And they unknowingly and sort of immaturely say, of course we can. And Jesus then in a kind of a solemn way says, well, you're going to, you're going to drink from the cup that I do. And that cup is a cup of suffering. So he's essentially saying, you're going to suffer. Um, but it's not in my purview to give you these places of honor. So uh, the answer is no. <laughs> so uh, on their way to Jerusalem, when they were, uh, when the, Jesus and his entourage were headed to Jerusalem, where he would later be arrested and tried and crucified, he sends word ahead of him to this Samaritan village to prepare for the arrival of his entourage. But the village sends somebody back out to them as they're walking along the road, telling them that they would not be allowed to enter that village because he was a Jew. At that time, the Samaritans were very much treated with disdain, like lower than human by the Jews. And this was their way of, of saying, you're not welcome here. Um, so, James and John are pretty upset. I told you that they, they're the sons of thunder, so they are pretty passionate people. And they took great umbrage at this, and they said to Jesus, should we just call down fire from heaven on them? A very Old Testament response to uh, disobedience, I guess you could call it. So uh, these are all Old Testament people, by the way. It's good to remember this, that their whole context for, for what God is and what he does and what his character is like comes from the accounts in the Old Testament of God's relationship with his people. And so calling down fire from heaven isn't that different from some of the things that they've read about, but Jesus rebukes them right away. He says, no, we're not going to do that. It's a different deal, guys. Um, but it's important to, to remember that John was one of those who, who said, Jesus, this is what we should do. You can just imagine him frothing at the mouth when he hears that the, the Samaritan village will not allow him to come in. He's just immediately infuriated by this and ready to obliterate the town because of it. So John, of course, wrote the fourth gospel. 
and the three letters at the tail end of the New Testament that he wrote, likely when he was in Ephesus, um, that, that when he, that he stayed in Jerusalem after the crucifixion and famously Jesus looked at him from the cross and looked at his mother and said, mother, there's your new son. And, and to John, John, there's your, your, your new mother, essentially saying, John, take care of my mom. So this is why I'm saying John's an interesting person amongst his disciples, because look, think about this. Jesus entrusts the care of his mother to John. Uh, so John inherits a responsibility and a role that is huge. Um, and Jesus quickly trusts him with that because he knows he can. So, uh, so John stays in Jerusalem, becomes sort of one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church after the resurrection until Mary passes away. And after that happens, he no longer has this, this role that he's been given to take care of her. So he leaves and goes to Ephesus where um, he, he tries to plant the church in Ephesus and later is arrested. Some stories that say that there was some attempts to execute him that didn't work. <laughs> uh, there's some interesting stories around that. Who knows whether those are mythic or real. But uh, eventually he's banished to the island of Patmos for the rest of his life. So he's a prisoner on this island of Patmos for the rest of his life. So he's the only disciple to die of old age. Uh, the rest of them were all martyred. And as I mentioned, uh, in his role as a leader in the early church in Jerusalem, he was, he was asked uh, uh, to sort of vet Saul's conversion to Paul and accept him within the Jerusalem church. So giving Paul sort of the official imprimatur to go out and represent the church. Uh, so that was an important acceptance Paul had to get before he could uh, safely uh, go around the world and be accepted for his role in representing the church. And so um, he got that acceptance from John and a couple other early leaders. Of course, uh, John was amongst the inner circle of uh, Jesus' in the inner circle along with um, along with Peter and James. And so the three were, were um, often invited into experiences that the rest of the disciples were not invited into. Um, they got to see things the others did not see firsthand. And also John is, is the first one to the tomb. After a report from Mary Magdalene that it was empty uh, on that third day, Mary, of course, is the first one to encounter the empty tomb. And she goes back to the where the disciples are gathered and tells them and John immediately takes off running. And so does Peter. Uh, apparently John is a faster runner because <laughs> he arrives first. And he says in his account in the gospel of John several times that he was faster than Peter. So there must've been something going on between the two of those guys. But, but John ran faster, got there first, but didn't go in. Peter catches up from behind and immediately goes in. And he's the first one to enter inside the tomb and see the, the wrappings carefully folded by the slab where, where the body of Jesus had been lying. So he's also, um, as I've already mentioned, the only male disciple at the cross. The rest have scattered, uh, hiding from uh, the Roman authorities who they were fairly sure were, were going to hunt them down and kill them all. Um, and that's, again, where Jesus asked him to take care of his, uh, of his, of his mother. So there's there's a little overview of John's life, but there is this big mystery about his life. He insisted on calling himself 
as I mentioned before, the disciple Jesus loved. He does it five times in his gospel account. Now, it was sort of a common humility back then in, in, for those who wrote in the ancient times. If you were writing about something that included yourself, it was common humility to not reference yourself directly in the thing you were writing, to sort of treat yourself in the third person. So John did that in his gospel account, but he chose to identify himself in a very unusual way. The disciple Jesus loved. Why did he do that? That's the mystery that we want to plunge into here. He could have said, you know, I'm the smart one or the fast one or the loud one, or I'm one of the sons of thunder. <laughs> he could have said any of those things. Instead, he identifies himself as someone who is beloved by Jesus. Well, I, I think let's start out with a premise here. When, when you're close to someone and you love that person, um, you get infected by that person. You know, we've talked a lot in this last year about infections and viruses, and we've learned a lot about how they spread and how to keep them from spreading. And viruses have tremendous ability to move through a people from person to person. And the same is true metaphorically, that when we are close to someone, we get infected with their presence, with their essence. We pick up things from them that sometimes are even imperceptible that end up forming who we become. So I started thinking about this, trying to think metaphorically, what would this look like if you were gonna, let's say, um, do some kind of experiment to show how infections or viruses spread what would you do? So I just, um, you know, I went to YouTube and, and searched for, to see if I could find some demonstrations, like a, like a, like a home experiment you might use uh, to show how an infection spreads. And I found a perfect one that, um, that it's very simple too. What you do is you take a bowl of water and you, and you shake some pepper out into the bowl. And then you simply dip your fingers into that bowl of water and then pull them out. And let's say you do this with your left hand. Just picture this. Imagine this with me. You're put, putting your left hand into this bowl that's full of water and pepper. And you pull it out. And what you find is that your fingers are covered in pepper. Um, it's coated your fingers with pepper. That's a good picture of what it looks like to immerse yourself in someone's presence. When you're outside of their presence again, some of their essence and who they are has stuck to you. Uh, because, especially if this is a person that you really care for and love, because that's a, uh, when you love someone, you have a fundamental invitational approach to that person. You open yourself to be impacted by that person because you love them. So, the love of a person is, this, is a similar act as putting your fingers in that bowl of pepper water. When you love someone, you immerse yourself in them. And then when you're outside of their presence, some of that person is still stuck on you, I guess is a way of saying it. That's how they infect you. So they, they, they have transferred that influence. Now, the opposite is also true. If you're around a person that you don't care for deeply or don't know very well, um, your, your guard is up, oh, your boundaries are up. Um, in this same experiment, you could take your right hand and put it into a cup of 
um, dish soap, for instance. Uh, just swirl it around in some dish soap. Dish, dish, dish soap. I can't speak anymore, can I? And and get those on your right fingers, and then put that in the same bowl of pepper. And you, what you'll see is that the pepper spreads away from it. It just flees like uh, like sheep fleeing a wolf pack. <laughs> so when you put that dish soap on your on your fingers, it it drives away the pepper and. It's actually a good visual for why it's so important, why it's been so important for us to wash our hands. It's not just cleaning our hands that matters. It's actually that that soap drives away the virus when we use it. So, so it's possible in this metaphor to think of when you're around people, sometimes you have soap on you. <laughs> you don't uh, invite their, their immersive influence into your life. In fact, you naturally repel it depending upon who that person is. So, uh, but if we go back to, let, let's say this is a person you have great respect for and, and a real love for, well, how, how does that person's essence end up impacting you? Um, so if you think about right now, who's a person in your life that has had tremendous influence in your life? Who, who is someone who has, uh, that you really have a love for? I'm not talking about influence where um, that influence was negative or damaging. I'm talking about somebody who's influenced you well in your life and that you have a, a great deal of love for them. I'm, I'm gonna, I did this little experiment myself. I took my wife out of the equation because it's almost too easy. If you're married to someone and you love them, which I do, um, then that person's influence is just, uh, it, 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 it's like threads woven throughout your life. So many different ways of influence. So I decided that was too easy. So I thought about um, who else besides my wife has had a real influence on me. And um, my longtime friend and pastor for many years, Tom Melton, had a tremendous influence on my life, especially over the course of about 12 years when I was deeply involved in church leadership in the church he pastored, um, I was around Tom a lot. We just developed a, a, a deep friendship uh, and, a, and a kinship actually together. We did a lot of things together and I was around Tom a lot. And um, when I look back to think about, well, how, how did that friendship influence who I am today? Well, um, Tom had been um, a leader in young life for a couple of decades. And one of the ways that young life attracts young people into their ministry is by uh, uh, sort of uh, prioritizing fun. <laughs> they did a lot of stuff that was just plain fun. Well, Tom brought that into his pastoring when he was pastoring a very large church. And he thought fun was great and was <laughs> and needed to happen at church. And so uh, he and his wife, Jill, um, and along with some others uh, at, the, at the time who were in leadership of the church, uh, started this uh, performance idea called Club Valentino in the church that uh, happened around Valentine's Day every year. And it was supposed to be kind of like a, a variety show put on by the staff and elders. But by the time we uh, entered into the church, it had become a huge deal. Um, it still was a variety show put on by the staff and elders, uh, but it was on uh, like five successive nights in, in one week um, because it was so popular. And it was like dinner theater. You got served dinner at a round table 
And then there was this uh, hour and a half, two hour long performance. And it was just basically a lot of skits and some singing performances mostly. And it was all created <clears throat> by all of us. Uh, once I became a leader in the church, I got to participate in this too. And we created this as, as sort of like, a, uh, it had the feeling as if you were in a Broadway comedy musical. Um, and uh, we used a lot of skits from the old Carol Burnett show and, and other and other sources, but we did them all ourselves and we acted on all of them ourselves. And it was just maybe the most fun night I've ever had. Just being a being an audience member to start out with and then actually being a part of it. That fun factor ruined me forever for how powerful it is to have fun together as people, uh, as the people of God that not everything related to our faith is this solemn slog of a journey. It's, it's meant to be fun. And fun has this powerful connective tissue impact on the body of Christ. And that's one of the things that Tom will always have changed, is, will always have changed in me. Just this receptivity like a child to fun fun in the community of others, and fun in my relationship with Jesus. Tom also um, often taught, probably every time he spoke in church, um, he referenced the primacy of grace, that he had experienced grace himself, and then he wanted everyone else to experience the kind of grace that he had. And so Tom prioritized grace, and because he did that, grace became much deeper and, and more threaded into every aspect of my life and my mentality. Um, and then Tom had what I, what I would call his Tomisms, things that he said very often that kind of have woven their way into the fabric of who I am. He said things like, uh, that which is most personal is most universal. I, I use that phrase all the time now in my conversations and in my writing. That which is most personal is most universal. So the more personal you are, the more you locate whatever it is you're learning within your own story, um, instead of excluding others, it actually attracts others into it because they find that same connective tissue. He also said all the time, notice what you notice, which I'm constantly thinking about in my everyday life. If I notice something, I stop and pause and I ask myself, well, why am I noticing that right now? He invented a word that, uh, called appreciato, which is a mashup of appreciation and aficionado. And, it, and he made up that word to describe himself, which uh, he definitely is an appreciado, somebody who uh, is an aficionado of appreciation. He, when you notice what you notice, then you, then you point out the beauty of it and the wonder of it, you become an appreciado. And uh, he gave me a word to describe what I'm like to. I'm an appreciado, but I never had a way of, of understanding what that was until I met Tom. And then, and then he often said this about the church staff at that church. Does it look better the closer you get? So sometimes things look good from far away, especially anything related to a relationship can look good from far away. But the closer you get, does it look even better? That was his standard for his own staff. And it's always struck me that that's a standard of authenticity, right? It's, an, it's a standard of whether um, there's congruence in who you are and, and what your relationships are like. It should look closer the closer you get. 
So, and the last thing that really I thought of that really impacted me or uh, his essence got on me or infected me was that whenever Tom talked about Jesus from the front, he got emotional. Um, talking about Jesus was not simply a theological exercise for him. It was him talking about the one person who saw him best and loved him most. And so whenever he talked about Jesus, he would get emotional. And that emotion that he showed as he talked about Jesus really impacted me. It drew me. That's the first thing that drew me to him. Um, and I found in him a kindred spirit because of that. And he helped me to embrace and, and be relaxed around that expression of worship, where when you're talking about Jesus, sometimes you just get emotional. So those are some examples of how me being around someone that I really respected and loved um, infected me with that person's presence. And this is how it happens, that the, the pepper, if you wanna look at it that way, the pepper of Tom's particular personality and unique characteristics got on me as well and impacted me. And in, if you took, took your finger then that is covered with that pepper and you put it in your mouth and, and sort of sucked off the pepper from your finger, then that's another level of intimacy, isn't it? Now, you're, now you've ingested that essence. And I think with the people that we are particularly inviting to in our life, we ingest their essence. Um, it be, that pepper becomes a part of us. It's inseparable from us. So, so um, the question is though, <clears throat> will, is this person that you're around, are you inviting that essence or do you have boundaries and uh, walls so that um, that person's essence does not quote unquote get on you? <laughs> um, so in the case of John, um, he's clearly from the very beginning opening himself to Jesus and his influence in his life. So much so that by the time we get to the Last Supper, he's, his head is reclining on Jesus. He has so invited Jesus into uh, this immersive impact in his life. He's, he's gone so deep that he's that trustworthy and that relaxed and that uh, that childlike in his uh, physical presence with Jesus. He's clearly inviting Jesus at the deepest level. And Jesus understands that. And I think that's, that's also why he entrusts the care of his mother to him in the end. But um, I thought it'd be interesting for us to take a look at the, uh, his first letter uh, that he wrote from Ephesus to the church. And he was writing uh, to the church scattered about uh, something that also Paul frequently wrote about, which is churches that had started to be led astray by false witnesses and false prophets. He was writing, generally speaking, to churches that were uh, starting to embrace false teachings that were not like what had been planted by the disciples. And so that's what his, <clears throat> his first letter, the theme of it is really all around that. But I thought it'd be interesting to take that first letter and just dip into a few places in the letter to see if we can pick out the ways that Jesus has influenced the way John thinks and lives his life. What, what can we can we find the pepper <laughs> that that is that has uh, sort of rubbed off on John from Jesus, and what is it? 
So I thought that would be an interesting little exploration here. So let's do that for a few minutes. We're going to start off <clears throat> just from the, the first chapter of this first letter of John. So this will be 1 John 1, 1 through 10. So I want you to be thinking about, um, as I read this, well, what do you think the pepper that's rubbed off on John is? Can you pick out the Jesus influences on John's life as we read this? So you're going to have to think creatively and in a nuanced way. So pay ridiculous attention here to what John is saying and try to extrapolate from what he's saying to the influence Jesus might have had on what he's saying. Um, so let's do that. It's 1 John 1, 1 through 10. If you're not driving right now and you want to flip over to that passage in your Jesus-centered Bible, go ahead and do that. 1 John is, is near the end of the New Testament. Of course, John wrote the book of Revelation as well. Most believe that he wrote that while he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. So John, John wrote quite a bit of the New Testament when you, when you count up the Gospel of John and his three letters in the book of Revelation. Uh, there's quite a bit there that, that uh, John wrote. Uh, so uh, th this first letter, though, he wrote from Ephesus, and here's how it starts. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we, we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may be you may fully share our joy. And this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So let's just stop right there and see if we can spotlight a few places that, that, that we can find where Jesus' influence has impacted John. We know from the beginning of what he's saying here is, He's trying to locate himself as someone who actually was with Jesus. So first of all, he's saying, hey, I was with him. <laughs> I touched him. Um, I, I have personal experience with him. So what I'm about to tell you is from firsthand experience with Jesus. And what I'm telling you is that I didn't know from the beginning, but over time, it was revealed and unveiled to me who Jesus really is. Yes, I always thought he might be the Messiah, but what I didn't realize was that he was God himself. And I know now that this is true because of the immersive time I spent with him. And so the, the first thing he wants to declare to them then is that God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. So this, if you remember back to 
Dr. Peter Kreef talking about what it meant to meet Jesus. He said it was like it was like being hit by lightning. <laughs> it's interesting here that John is saying to meet Jesus is like getting hit by lightning. He's perfect light. There's no darkness in that bolt of lightning at all. And he's speaking metaphorically here, obviously, but now he's, he's talking about his experience of relating to someone who is purely holy, someone in whom is only goodness and no evil whatsoever. This was the, the upending way that Jesus had impact on people. And by, I, by me saying that he's pure holiness does not mean, again, that he's pure sol solemnness. <laughs> John experienced him the same way we experience the beauty of light. If there is darkness and we're craving light, when the light appears, that's what it felt like to be around Jesus. That's what John is saying, that this light was delightful and magnetic and life-changing. So the light actually exposes the darkness that you're living in. And so he goes on to talk about if you're living in the light, well, you know, your, your darkness is going to get exposed. <laughs> and John must have experienced this over and over again, to be in the presence of Jesus is to have your darkness exposed. And yet the fundamental thing that he picked up from Jesus is that's okay. Don't worry about your darkness getting exposed. In fact, relax about it because I've come to cleanse you from that sin. That the beauty of my presence in your life is not that I expect you to be perfect. The beauty of my presence in your life is that I'm relaxed about your imperfection you can confess it. You can talk about it. You can, you can, um, you you can relax, because I've come to free you from the darkness, to free you from the captivity of that sin. So John here is speaking in a very relaxed way. Hey, don't don't talk about not sinning and being perfect like the Pharisees are always touting that they're following all the laws perfectly. Don't do that. Um, there is something called grace, and John here has clearly embraced the reality of grace in his life because he's urging people to simply invite the light in and drag the darkness out. Um, so he's relaxed about it. So let's skip ahead here and dip into another portion of the first letter of John. Let's go to chapter three. Um, and read from verses 11 to 20. So 1 John 3, 11 to 20. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life but a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and he knows everything. 
I just love this little passage. So he's, he's saying that the message you keep hearing from us is about loving each other, that the love of your neighbor, the love of each other, the love of your enemies is really the central thing that has infected John's life. This love for Jesus, um, which is sort of, you might call it a vertical love from John to God or John to Jesus, this vertical love has a horizontal expression. It's almost like light is refract refracted. The light of Jesus comes down into us and is refracted through the treasure of who we are uh, sideways into the lives of many others around us. That same love then spills out of us into others. So he starts off with this story that everyone knows about Cain and Abel and, uh, and basically says, well, uh, Abel was doing the right thing and yet he was hated. So don't be shocked. Here's another thing he learned from Jesus firsthand. Don't be shocked. No, normally when we say, well, somebody hates me or somebody's upset with me, our first thought is there's something wrong with me. That, that you know, there, there must be something wrong with me or that or else that person wouldn't hate me. John had now learned by being immersed in the presence of Jesus, he had seen over and over again how perfect goodness could be hated. He saw it right in front of his own eyes. And so this deep truth had now seeped into him. He understood at a deep level at his core that if he was doing good things and if he was living out the goodness of Jesus in his life, he would very likely be hated by some people and don't take that as a indicator that the way you're living is wrong. Instead, the way you're living is right because of that. So he had ingested this truth from seeing it lived out in the person of Jesus himself, who was perfect goodness and yet was hated by so many. So, um, and then he says that the expression of this love, the way you'll know that you love Jesus is that when you see the needs of others, you have a natural default setting to show compassion to them and want to help them. It's just a natural fruit of our love for Jesus. That love of Jesus is like a river that needs um, uh, little valleys and fissures to go forward. And the valleys and fissures are our uh, relationships with others, that that love finds new paths to go to, to run down through the connections we have in our life to through our relationships. And so what he's saying is that if you love Jesus, then the source of love is flowing through you and it's got to find a way out as well. And it's going to find a way out into the lives of the people that are around you. So don't just say that you love each other. Um, let that water flow through you to others. Uh, show the truth of it through your actions. This is something again that John had experienced firsthand. Uh, his love for others around him had greatly increased as his immersion in the love of Jesus became deeper and deeper. He was able to love the people around him as his depth of love for Jesus, his experience of Jesus' love for him increased. So John identifies himself as the disciple Jesus loved, and it's that disciple Jesus loved who's talking about the horizontal expression of that love flowing through him. Because he can accept the deep love of Jesus, it flows right through him onto others. Let's do one more last little excerpt from 1 John. This one is from 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. 
and going to verse 21. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he'll give us what we ask for. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Now, here John talks several times about Jesus not only being. Uh, you know, delivering light or delivering eternal life, but being light and being eternal life and being the life and love. It's not just that Jesus expresses these things. He's the very source of these things. Again, John was around a person for three and a half years who um, not only spoke the truth, he was the truth. And John now sees firsthand through all of his immersive experiences with Jesus, what it means to be infected with goodness from the source of all goodness. So uh, everything John says here is not about propositional truth. It's about relational truth. When you are relationally connected to Jesus, he's discovered through his, through his deep connection to Jesus. When you are relationally connected to him, everything he has flows into you. So that, that means that your inclinations are toward goodness and not toward evil. That's what he's trying to say. If, if, if you are in secure relationship with Jesus, then your, your deepest inclinations are for goodness and not evil. And it's that that fuels our good actions. Then it's not our discipline and it's not, um, you know, how well we've understood the commandments and how much willpower we've expressed to keep them. It's our deep attachment to Jesus. This is what John has discovered, that when you attach yourself to the source of all these things, that, that all of that flows through you. And he's saying that because of this relational connection, the two have become one. That And therefore, the evil one cannot pry you apart because now you're intertwined the heart of Jesus. So John here is expressing a deep sense of relaxedness around um, sin and goodness and, and his relationship with God. It's not that he's not aware of the evil one. He just knows he's secure, safe from him, because his life is now intertwined with the life of Jesus. How can you separate the two? Remember when Jesus said, uh, when two have become one, let no man separate them. And that means the intertwining of lives is impossible to really pull apart. And John is saying, my life with Jesus is like that. It's intertwined with him and it's impossible to pull apart. So I can relax uh, about evil. I can relax about my own sin. I don't have to worry about it so much because I know in the context of my intertwined relationship with Jesus, he will forgive me if I bring that darkness to him. 
And because I live with him and he is light, I'm going to be uh, very much aware along the way of the darkness that's in me. And all I have to do is offer it to him. So don't worry, he's telling the, the people he's writing to. Don't worry about this so much. Don't live under the, the conscripts of what the Pharisees have said, which is greater and greater willpower to keep, to keep the law. Instead, make your focus on the relational connection you have with Jesus so that light will live in you. And when the darkness surfaces, just give it to him. Don't worry about it. Don't, don't labor over it. Just admit it, give it to him, and move on. That's what John is trying to say. And think of the power of a life lived that way. That's the life John is living. So there's a few little dives into John's first letter and a few ways that we can see the pepper or the Jesus has rubbed off on him. Um, and I think it's interesting to close off here that we don't often think about how we have rubbed off on Jesus. What is the pepper from us that is on his fingers? We don't often think about that, but this kind of intimate relationship goes both ways. We rub off on Jesus as well. We, we who we are, our essence, impacts him as well. Let's just close off by reflecting on the words of the prophet Isaiah. This is um, from uh, the 49th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Here's what he says. Now here he's, he's first sort of um, representing the words of the Jews to God. And then he will respond as God has responded to them. So what he first says is, this is how the Jews often complain. <laughs> um, he says, the Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. But Isaiah says, God responds, never. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she's born? But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. I have written your name on the palms of my hands. Or I've gotten the pepper of your essence all over me. It's another way of saying it. You are in me. Who you are has impacted me. I can't forget you because I'm intertwined with you. My life and your life are, are together. The two have become one. That's God's message to us. And maybe it's the message you need to hear today. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Uh, again, you can head on over to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and look for season six, episode 11 for links about what we've already talked about today. This is, again, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll see you again next week.